So, you know, if you're going to try something transformative, it's not easy. And it's something that you actually have to go out and educate on. You actually have to go to 2300 Wisconsin Avenue and, and do the interview and explain it to people. You have to stand in front of a couple thousand people in industry and say, look, I'm going to do this and I think it's going to add value for you. You know, you, you know I always say that, you know, I put my chips into the middle of the table and said, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to live with the downside if it doesn't work. That's the risk. You have to fully commit to it. Welcome to GovCast, connecting with federal IT's top decision makers. And what you just heard was our GovCast interview with Jose Arrieta, published on August 29th, 2018. 163 episodes later, we are here today to celebrate half a decade of GovCast. That's right. Today marks exactly five years since our first episode was published and to mark this momentous occasion, we have gathered hosts from across our podcasts to chat about some of our favorite interviews and memories, and to toast another five years of this wonderful show. With me to reflect and rejoice are Editor-in-Chief Amy Kluber, Managing Editor Ross John Fortune, Staff Writer-Researcher Jayla Whitfield, and Staff Writer-Researcher Anastasia Obis. Welcome, everyone. Hello. Hey, Alex. Hi. Hello. Five years of GovCast, 163 episodes. It's a lot to cover. So we are going to go in depth on every single interview. Are you all ready? Definitely. Yep. I appreciate the, uh, the enthusiasm, but no, we are not actually going to be summarizing all five years of GovCast. Instead, I have invited all of us to pick a favorite episode, a favorite interview from each of our six seasons of GovCast. We are going to work our way in reverse chronological order. So we're going to start with the most recent episode selected, going all the way back to 2018. And obviously, I encourage all of our listeners to explore the archives because I think you're going to hear some names that don't come up too frequently these days. There's even some hosts in those older episodes that are not here anymore. It really is just such a great catalog that we have. But to start off, Anastasia, you have our most recent pick. Which episode are you highlighting? One of my favorite episodes that I did was with Vice Admiral Jeffrey Trussler, and he is retiring as the Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Information Warfare, the position that he's held since 2020. In this episode, uh, he reflects on his nearly 40-year career. He shares his thoughts on JETC2, the future of warfare, security concerns, but one topic that I want to highlight here and that he's really passionate about is the radio frequency spectrum potential sales. So radio frequency is not infinite. It's extremely valuable. And the Department of Defense is potentially uh, one of the biggest users of radio frequency spectrum in the country. And Vice Admiral Trussler's concern is that there was a legislation introduced in regards to the DOD sharing radio frequency spectrum space with the industry. It's a great problem to have because industry having access to segments of that space would improve our quality of life. However, for the Department of Defense, there are going to be national security concerns. 
this is all about physics. And it just turns out that there's uh, some sweet spot in the spectrum. Uh, you know, we'll call it, we'll call the mid band of the spectrum. I won't get into specific details where uh, energy at certain frequencies can travel distances that are of relevance and then can be uh, useful at the fidelity we want. And it just so happens, you know, for, and I'm talking about, frankly, radars. Okay. Now, and, and, and some communications. Now, uh, it also so happens that in the grand scheme of 5G that you hear about, and the ability to provide more, better, and faster connections for our devices and our capabilities out there, that's a pretty good sweet spot for that spectrum, too. So it's uh, what a great first world superpower problem to have, because we have industry clamoring to bring us better quality of life, better solutions every day for our daily personal lives, to our industries, uh, to keep our technological edge in the United States. This is a superpower problem. So although I get animated and some folks here in the Pentagon may get a little animated about it. It's just a great problem to have. My concern and my worry is just that uh, before, if we sell off parts of the spectrum, that it is a absolute decision that we understand potential trade-offs or risks, or that we have identified how it will be mitigated. For the Navy, for example, it's just, hey, uh, you know, our ability to, uh, to uh, train like we fight and then potentially fight like we train because we are uh, daily testing training on the full spectrum of our incredible combat system radars and things like that. If we're limited a bit because we're not allowed to interfere with certain frequencies, we, we start maybe either losing confidence in or not having confidence in or regular natural, natural uh, in, in a ballistic missile defense scenario of how we're going to operate our radars because we've done something falsely or that we've pushed ourselves so far offshore uh, that we're, we're, that we're wasting training time, just getting out to a safe area outside the national airspace, you know, or something like that. So that that's a challenge. Uh, I mean, the ballistic missile defense of North America is based on radars that use frequencies that are, you know, are being discussed about selling. So there, there's some concerns there. It's not, that's not specific to Navy. That's all services. Uh, all, uh, I think all services have major weapons systems that we operate and train on in North America. We do R&D at our training ranges because we are constantly upgrading, testing new, uh, and uh, we've got decades and billions of dollars into some of the weapon systems and radars that support them over the years. We have weapon systems uh, that that are tested and run and operate in these frequencies. So we're very concerned, uh, one, about selling off pieces of spectrum that right now are allocated to the DOD, such that, well, we can't, we now are limited from using them or limited to areas that are not relevant or that somehow impact our large training ranges or our offshore training ranges. So that that is an impact. Or if, or if we get to an agreement on sharing the spectrum, I, I'm just concerned because I don't know that we have demonstrated sharing of the spectrum effectively yet. I know that there have there's some agreements in place 
I don't know how much runtime we have to show that the methodologies for how sharing works actually work yet. So that's my big concern. And my big push that I push with DOD, anybody that'll listen to me on Capitol Hill or anywhere else, that's just, hey, make sure it's deliberate. Make sure that everybody is at the table and that everybody nods that they understand, because I, I worry that there's uh, uh, you know, a, a big group of people that are really pushing to give industry opportunity and enhance our the United States overall technological advantage and commercial opportunities and versus the DOD. And I'm sure that the DOD, we are considered uh, outdated, slow, and uh, that we're really not using that much. And I, I get it. But there's uh, there's various levels of classification of things we use, no use that we publicly aren't going to talk about. So it's about getting everybody at the table. So I, I am big and passionate on that. I want eyes wide open. And uh, Mr. John Sherman, our DOD CIO, uh, leads that effort for the department, doing a fabulous job. Him and uh, Fred Moorfield, who, who leads that for him. And and I'm just I'm constantly poking, pushing. I'm 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 being the loud. Send send me in and put the helmet on, and I'll go hit the brick wall for you. And then you you come in and give the good explanation because I, we're passionate about that in the investments we have in the Navy uh, from those systems we own. Thank you, Anastasia. I think this interview in particular highlights one of the things I enjoy most about GovCast is that often it can function as an exit interview and we get these really holistic stories of people's lives and experiences and really just get this insight into what it means to dedicate yourself to public service. So up next, we have Ross with a pick from season five. Ross, which episode are you highlighting? So I want to highlight an August 25th, 2022 conversation with Margaret Glick, federal student aid CIO at the Department of Education. Student loans uh, and administrative burdens are on the minds of borrowers now and were then. And particularly at the time, the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program had been tweaked to open up forgiveness to a lot more borrowers, hundreds of thousands of them, largely by reducing the friction uh, that people felt while dealing with the process, particularly the process online, the questionnaires, paperwork, classic administrative burdens. She spoke to GovCast to chat about the ways that the department is making the aid process easier, the burdens less arduous, and the department systems more secure. It's one of those interviews that sheds light both on the problems and the solutions surrounding a hot topic issue. And in this case, that issue is student debt and the ways that people interact with all of the systems involved. I mean, we have so many near and midterm projects that are kind of already going, but longer term, we're trying to gear up for the future. You know, we need to build and change the systems we use, but we really want to look forward to how our systems will be used in the future. Um, we're focusing a lot on the executive order um, for uh, cybersecurity. I mean, that's going to impact all across government, but um, that's one thing that we're looking at and modernizing and, and having that tool of having the EO, it makes it easier for us as an organization to prioritize. And some of the enhancements around cybersecurity, you know, entail modernization. So that fits in many ways for us, but we're looking to automate, relieve administrative burden, as I mentioned, and, you know, making sure that bad actors don't have access to our system. We have the information for so many people in this country, and we take that really seriously. We want to make sure that um, we can continue to be entrusted with that, and we think about their well-being and, and their information and hold it tight. So, 
we're really looking at, um, in addition to making things better and easier, making things more secure. Um, so we just added a two-step verification to our website, which I do think some people feel is a um, an inconvenience, and it's a necessary move that we have to make. And again, we're trying out our tools to make sure that people can easily use it. So um, I think by January of next year, everyone using studentaid.gov will have to use the two-step verification multi-factor authentication, as it's called in the EO. Um, so that's one of the things where we're, you know, working towards not just implementing regulations, but also making them um, manageable um, for our um, all of our users. And in addition, we have big things around FAFSA simplification and the Future Act. Um, so that's a, a big move that we're working on right now. We're upgrading systems. I mean, one of them 50 years old. So you can imagine um, the work that goes into something like that. And uh, just as many, you know, I would say commercial places, it's easy. It's easier to modernize the front end. It's a much bigger challenge to modernize all the operations that go behind it. And that's a lot of what we're looking at now. And how do we do that and make, a, uh, make it flexible enough that we're going to be able to be in a future you know, technology environment that we can support, that we can be flexible enough to move towards. So we're not just thinking about making things easier, making things better. We're thinking about how does this fit in with you know, a cloud strategy? How does this fit in with, you know, where technology operations are going? So um, a lot of work to do, but we're really, I'm just excited about it. It is never ending fun and challenges. Thank you, Ross. I know that user experience is something that has come up quite a bit on GovCast. And I honestly would probably say it's my favorite thing that we talk about because it's probably the part of government that touches our lives the most is how we interface online and especially with services and departments that are relevant for everyone. Education, IRS comes up a lot. It's really fascinating and kind of reassuring to know that there are people in the public sector who care about making the government more accessible and user friendly. Up next, we have Jayla. You have a pick from season four. Which episode are you highlighting? Yeah, so let's take it back to season four. This is episode 21. And on GovCast, we had Karen Howard as a guest. She's the executive director of online services at the IRS. And the episode focused on how the IRS plans to modernize online experiences. Now, this episode was right after uh, COVID. So Howard came into this role during the peak of the pandemic. So it was a, it was a bit of a challenge. Um, and she talks about that transition during uh, this episode. But she also talks about the greater purpose that this position gave her, how it allowed her to service the American people and really feel comfortable in doing something that matters every single day. She even relates it to some personal experiences that she's even had with meeting people that didn't really know much about the IRS and the other options that they have to offer. Um, so like I said, it was a chaotic time when she joined, she quickly learned how to pivot and it was hard, but it strengthened her overall. And in addition for the IRS, the pandemic actually transformed the agency. I don't know if you guys recall, but during that time, the stimulus payments were going out 
to people all around the country. But one of the main things that she talked about during this episode is how they really want to focus on digital modernization. And those efforts don't just include technology. She also made sure to mention that they include offering resources and processes to create a digital experience that everyone can enjoy and interact with. I know Americans all around the country, they file their taxes every single year, and sometimes it can seem like a difficult process. But she really wants to use that digital modernization to make sure that those interactions for Americans are easy and that there's a one-stop shop to fulfill every single tax obligation. When when people think about, you know, uh, modernization, digital, the first thing they think about is technology, which does play a huge role in, in the transformation. But I think another thing that really, you know, is at top of mind for people when you talk about digital modernization are resources and processes, right? You know, you've really got to look at, you know, all three things to make uh, digitization happen. But I think what's most top of mind for me and my team is, uh, you know, looking at the 21st Century Integrated Digital Experience Act, which is really about improving the digital experience for government customers and reinforcing existing requirements for federal public websites. So one of the things that are one of the um, core core responsibilities in my office is IRS.gov. So as we look at you know how people interact and the touch points for taxpayers and the taxpayer community with IRS.gov, we really focus on um, how we can meet the challenge of that act. Whether it's looking at applications that need to be um, updated or even new applications that help people really interact with um, irs.gov in a way that they hadn't in the past. I think the pandemic you know, lit a fire there, right? We were all home trying to work and knowing that we had the, in, in the Office of Online Services, we had the responsibility of irs.gov, which is the first place people go. We had to really step back and look at with our stakeholder partners, with IT, with our external partners as well, all the things that we had done or needed to do to enable people to really interact with the pub with that website in a way um, to you know comply with their tax obligation or to get information or to get forms, and so that that is always top of mind for us. But I think you know really the pandemic kind of said, hey, you know now others it's top of mind for others, which puts you know demand. On, on our team, which is great, right? People are recognizing that um, we, we really do have to interact in a way going forward, pandemic or not, where people can meet their tax obligation how, when, and where they want to. Thank you, Jayla. One of the things that GovCast really captured was just how the government reacted to the COVID-19 pandemic. And it really provided this real-time window into how things were changing. And we're still seeing the ripple effects of that move to remote, to virtual, going across the government and our daily lives. I mean, we are all still remote as well. So I really think that GovCast, along with our other podcasts from that time, serve as an invaluable time capsule and kind of a reminder of where we were, where we are now, and where we're going. So season three is my pick, and everybody else has provided a really great explanation as to the, you know, 
what was discussed on the podcast and what it means for the federal government. And I am not a researcher. I am not a writer. I am the editor. And so I am going with one that has a little personal meaning for me. And that is our season three interview with Julie Dunn, commissioner of GSA Federal Acquisition Service, because this was one of the very first podcasts I edited when I joined the company. There may have been a handful of other episodes that I worked on when I first started. But for some reason, Julie Dunn's episode is the first one that I have like a really clear memory of working on and one that I think about to this day. It makes me shudder a bit my approach to editing back then. I was certainly still learning and sometimes I'm tempted to go back and re-edit, but it serves as a marker of my time with GovCIO Media and Research and just how much our podcasts have grown and developed since then. Well, I see the federal marketplace strategy as kind of a framework for continuous improvement in terms of the acquisition process. And we have a number of projects going on under that rubric. Probably heard folks talk about the four C's and, you know, one of them is the the contract writing system. And you know, I remember from my time on the Hill, I would hear people talk about the idea of perhaps coming up with, you know, a government-wide contract writing system. I think GSA is doing it the right way in terms of let's focus on what our agency needs and try and build something out that makes sense, keeping in mind other requirements. And we are, you know, we'll start out as a pilot on the contract writing system, but as we roll that pilot out, we're taking input from a number of different business units across the Federal Acquisition Service. And that and the mass consolidation effort, those are big projects, as, as you noted. But I think part of the success so far is we have engaged across the enterprise. Part of my job, I see, is engaging across the enterprise. Folks, you know, they have their different portfolios and I need to keep asking those questions. How does it benefit the enterprise as a whole and kind of look at the whole picture and make sure we really are integrating as much as we can feedback from all the different stakeholders. So it's not just a top down initiative. And I, I think that really has really played out, particularly with the mass consolidation effort. I remember recently going to visit Stephanie Shutt had her entire team across the country in the central office to talk about where they were. And I think it was right before, you know, we rolled out the mass mod. And there are people from across the country from varying topic areas that were really engaged and, and wanting to move forward on this. So I think it's important to continue to engage with all those stakeholders and, and make sure we're listening. I also had the opportunity category management continues to be something that, you know, that's again a long-term project. It's also one of the, the four C's under the federal marketplace strategy. And I know Dina McLaughlin has been a great leader in that area. And I also got the opportunity to, again, talk to earlier this year, talk to a, a steering committee group that was really engaged in terms of how can we move the ball forward in terms of how do we get to a single source of truth when it comes to, you know, the categories of goods and services? So, again, things that we want to kind of show early wins and, and we're working towards that. But these things all require sort of enterprise wide engagement and buy in and hoping to continue the progress that, that we've seen so far. On to Amy, who has picks for seasons two and one. Let's start with season two. One podcast I wanted to highlight was one I did with NASA CIO at the time, Renee Wynn. That was in June 2019. 
She's been heavily involved in a number of other organizations and companies since then. But what stuck out to me about her interview was her vision for the CIO role. She said it herself that she isn't actually a very technical person. Maybe something that most people can forget is that it takes a lot of quality leadership to guide tech programs as astronomical as NASA's to success. So yes, there's so much engineering and technical matters around building technology, but a successful technology program is more than that. And having women tech leaders like Renee are key. So there's my plug for next year's Women Tech Leaders Summit, but we have to save that for another episode. So let's begin with the moon and walk it backwards. Okay. And that is, is the commitment that the first female will be on the moon in 2024 in this campaign. And that's been stated publicly. And I'm really excited to see that because for all of the generations of girls and women and older ones too, what they see is possibility. It's the same symbolism to me as in discussions is seeing when our presidents begin to look like the rest of the United States with Obama being elected as a president, that hits communities in ways that you don't even know because you might not be part of that community, but giving iconic individuals to be out there and show you can, that changes the way a lot of people think. And when people think they can, that means more people, no one's getting left behind because they think it's possible. Charlie Bolden, as our NASA administrator, showed a boatload of people militarily He's a fabulous career in the military. Then he was an astronaut. And then he was the head of NASA. Talk about iconic and showing people what's possible. The people of South Carolina, the, the military folks that military may be their only opportunity for them to get higher education or get exposed to different ways of thinking. He, he just shows it in everything he does. But when you see your gender or you see yourself in people that are ahead of you doing these things, it really does change your mindset. And in that, you've got to have very diverse community that's advising you and telling you how to supporting you when you need the support or telling you how to get better or how to better prepare for your next adventure. Thank you, Amy. I know that you said that you wanted to keep our conversation about women tech leaders uh, for another time, but I always feel like we have to plug that specific event. It started off, I believe, in 2021 as a virtual event, but it really has just blossomed into what I think is a highlight of our content and mission as GovCIO Media and Research. All right, Amy, time for our last pick of our very special anniversary episode, season one. Which episode are you highlighting? I'm highlighting my very first podcast I shadowed in my first week here in December 2018. That was with Cezanne Palmer. She has since moved on from her career at Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, but her interview is so intriguing. It set a great start to the next five years of GovCIO meeting research. At Johns Hopkins, she was working on missions that are using tech to better understanding health and predict and prevent disease or illnesses. 
What was very interesting was early in her career when she worked on a program for Navy submarine crews before women in the Navy were even allowed to be on submarines. That ban was only lifted in 2010. That wasn't that long ago. So that definitely stood out to me in the interview. And I think just the programs and the technology that she was working on were fascinating. Certainly being a young woman working in the submarine world, again, this was back before women were allowed on submarines. That's something that, oh, wow. yeah, so it's been maybe in the last 10 years that has changed. That. Yeah. So, so now women can serve on submarines. But back when I started working in this space, they could not. I was usually the only or maybe one of two women in a room full of men who had either, you know, served aboard submarines or, you know, certainly had some connection with the Navy. So that was it, it was interesting because it's not something that, like, I noticed right away as an electrical engineering student in college in the 90s. It's not like there were that many women in my classes right, right. either. So it was kind of normal. But it was funny because, like, somewhere 10, 15 years into my career, somebody said, wow, you know, it's interesting. Like, when I saw you in these meetings, I wasn't really sure what you, you know, might have to contribute. But I've learned over time that, you know, even if you didn't serve on a submarine, you can add value. And I was like, oh, wow, I'm not sure if that's like a compliment or what. Yeah. But that was interesting. But I think just ignoring it, kind of putting it to the side and moving forward, like I just tried not to be distracted by that. I was like, I'm going to do a good job and I'm going to just not worry about it. And over time, I think like, you know, once you demonstrate your value, then other people ignore it too. But I think that was probably one of the situations where you kind of feel a little bit like a fish out of water. But it was short-lived. Once that was behind me, I can't really think of any other situations that like have continued or anything like that. I think it's, especially this day and age, there's a lot of women working in STEM fields now. And so it's not quite as different. It's crazy, though, that you were allowed to work on submarines, but not be on them. <laughs> right. Like we could be on them as like the scientists. So if we were working on a system, you know, they'd have to get all these special exceptions and things like that so that we could actually go on board to do whatever we needed to do. But when Women couldn't serve on submarines. And I mean, it's sort of, well, I won't get into all the all the details, but I mean, <laughs> there were some reasons that you thought, eh, okay, I guess that kind of makes sense. I mean, you have to like share beds, like hot bunking, and you know, you're in these close quarters and it's not like they have dozens of restrooms and things like that. So, you know, you could kind of see from a practical standpoint why it would have been hard, but if it's important, you can make it happen. And they did. Yeah, I wasn't even aware that that was only of 10 years ago. Crazy to think about. Right. Because <laughs> no, no one talks about that. No one, no one talks about the gender gap on submarines. I've right. never heard of that discussion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for enlightening us. That's something I want to look into right now. Right. My sister was um, an electrical engineer at Maryland as well, and she would talk about some of the disparities in the classroom. And so it's crazy to think it still goes on. But it's good to hear that from your perspective, things have changed over the years. If anything, I kind of see like way more focus now on on girls and women in STEM and it's mm. like everywhere you look that's all really positive but you know when I see like younger people coming into the workforce now it does seem pretty balanced that's really positive and a good sign thank you Amy well that represents five years of GovCast but obviously we had a lot more than just six episodes so I encourage all of our listeners to go back through our archives and listen for yourself. There is a lot to discover there. Well, Amy, Ross, Anastasia, Jayla, how many more years do you think 
will have govcast to infinity and beyond <laughs> as the only correct answer if anybody said less than infinity then uh <laughs> we'd have to talk yeah i, I was gonna like... take the the over uh i'm not a gambling member i'll take the over and say at least five more well here's to at least five more years um there's a good chance that i'm going to go record a bottle of champagne opening uh to celebrate and edit it in here Woo! happy five years of govcast and with all of that celebrating out of the way, it is time for us to get back to what we do best, which is connect you with federal IT's top decision makers. So if you're not already, please subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Leave a five star rating. Tell your friends because we are five years strong and we'll be here for at least another five, if not to infinity and beyond. We'll be back next week with a brand new interview. But until then, I'm Alexander Bolova. I'm Amy Kluber. I'm Ross John Fortuna. I'm Jayla Woodfield. And I'm Anastasia Obis. Thank you for listening. GovCast, along with HealthCast and CyberCast, is a production of GovCIO Media and Research. For more podcasts and to check out the other shows, head to govciomedia.com. Watch out for new episodes released every Tuesday and Wednesday across our shows. You can follow all of them on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like what you heard, make sure to let us know by leaving a review. And if you have any topics you think we should look into, contact us at newsletter at govcio.com.